Well, it's my pleasure also to welcome you to Canterbury Gardens this morning. It's uh, great to have you here. I see many uh, faces I do not know, and that's always encouraging. So uh, we trust that you will enjoy being here and worshipping God together. I'm Nathan, that's my name, and it's my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. Today is going to be a little different to our normal uh, sermon time, and there are two purposes which I want to achieve. As a church, we've decided that uh, we're going to go through the Gospel of John. Now, we're going to do that over three years, not consecutively. Okay, so we're going to do part one between now and uh, about July the 14th. At the start of 2020, we'll do part two, and at the start of 2021, we'll do part three. So part of the purpose this morning is to give you a general introduction into the Gospel of John. And secondly, I'll spend some time just looking at the first five verses in that gospel. So the eldership has decided we're going to look at this, we're going to study this, and, and to help you, we're, um, we're going to not really give you an ESV journey, journal, but there is an ESV Gospel of John journal available. Now, they're up here. Now, perhaps someone could grab them and help distribute them. We like every adult, every young person to have one of these because they're really handy. This is what they look like. On one side you have the text and on the second side you have a blank page. Blank pages are ideal for notes. You can highlight the text. We want this to be your, your, your very personal journal for the next three years as you, you study the Gospel of John. Now, we're going to have a bit of an honesty system about these because there is a cost to these. So if you want to pay for them, it's going to be based on honesty. You know, when, I, when I grew up as a kid, I grew up in a, an orchard-growing area, and you'd drive around, and, and there'd be fruit on stalls outside the gates of, of uh, many different places. And there'd be no one manning the stall or womaning the stall. There'd be no one there collecting money. There'd be an honesty box. That's what this is about. So $8 if you're honest and want to do it online, $10 if you want to pay cash, so we don't have change. So please, it's up to you to, to um, pay for that if you would like a journal. You can do all sorts of wonderful things with a journal. Like here, you can highlight the, the title of, of Christ as the Son of God, and on the right-hand side, you can go through the Gospel of John and, and look at all the times that Son of God is mentioned. Or you could get the pink highlighter out, the yellow highlighter and the orange highlighter and put a circle around the key purpose of the Gospel of John in John chapter 20. So these are the wonderful sorts of things you can do. At the back of the journal there's three, three or four blank pages and you can do all sorts of things with that to add extra notes about, uh, through your study of the Gospel of John. You might want to try and identify the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. You might want to try and identify the seven sign miracles that are in there. You might want to say, okay, how many times does John explicitly use the Old Testament in, in writing his Gospel? So there are all sorts of things you can do. And it, it's our heart as a teaching team to, to give you tools to help you study God's Word by yourselves. We want to model the study of God's Word so uh, deep within your heart the Spirit can use what you do to transform you into the likeness of Christ.
That's our desire. But there's one thing you must do for me today, if you've got one of these. See how similar they look. And you know, I'm not, I'm not silly here. I know people leave these behind in church. We sort of have an auction every Monday with the Bibles that are left here. But please, please, the very first thing you do, put your name on the inside. Put your name on the inside so it is yours. And when you may misplace it, um, we can actually get it back to you. Okay, so here we are. We're going to spend half our time giving you a general overview about the Gospel of John. So there's going to be quite a lot of information, so stay with it. And then we're going to look at the first five verses to give us a general introduction on how John introduces the divine Son of God to us. Leo Morris, he's a, he's a famous Australian theologian. He is now in glory. He wrote a wonderful commentary on the Gospel of John. And he said this about the Gospel of John. John's Gospel, he compares John's Gospel to a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple and profound. It is for the beginner in the faith and for the mature Christian. I love that descriptive nature. This gospel is, is deep and rich. It is completely simple for those who are seeking Christ out. And yet there is incredible depth for those of us who have been in the faith a long time and need to wrestle with the fundamentals of the faith. So as we embark on the Gospel of John, two questions need to be asked. Well, who wrote the book and why was the book written? Whenever we look at a, there is a purpose in, in why God's Word is God's Word. God's word is there to instruct, to refine, to instruct in righteousness. It's our job to, to sort through these issues. So who wrote the book? Okay, if you say John, that's a pretty good guess. It does say the gospel of John. But how do we get to that? Because in the gospel itself, uh, John never identifies himself right outly and says, I, John, am writing this thing for you. So there's two things you need to look at. You, firstly, you need to look at the external evidence. What external evidence beyond the Bible is there that tells us that John potentially could have written this book? And there's plenty of external evidence. And most of that external evidence happens in the first two or three hundred years of the Christian church by a bunch of men called the apostolic fathers, those who were close to Christ, those who were close to the apostles and formed the canon of scripture. And so we have these external testimonies by Irenaeus in AD 185 who confirmed that the authorship was John. We have some other early church fathers, the Clement of Rome, Polycarp, those guys actually knew John personally. They were alive about 100 AD and they, they testified in their writings. We have their writings and they testified that John was the author of this wonderful gospel. Folks by the name of Justin Martyr in 150, Clement of Alexandria in 150, 
Tertullian in 150. So there's myriads of external evidence to say John was the writer. What about the internal evidence? What what does the gospel tell us? And there's some internal evidence which we can look at. So so open up your journal, open up your Bible. We'll we'll go to John 1.14. This is where you get your little highlighter out and say, okay, this this potentially is internal evidence for the, the authorship of the gospel. 1 John 14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. So this immediately says this, this account is an eyewitness account. It has to be somebody who personally saw the glory of Christ. This is an internal piece of evidence. If you roll over to John 19.35, you will read these verses. This is at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. But one of the soldiers pierced the side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. So this eyewitness also saw the crucifixion of Christ. And you move over to John 21, 24, and you have this said. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. So at the end of the gospel, he starts declaring who he is. So he is a disciple. And I just love the balance of these verses, if you read through it. And he who has written these things, and we know that this testimony is true. He has this incredible certainty about the eyewitness account and what he's portraying to to us through this gospel. But listen to the next verse, verse 25, John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That is Christ who we worship. There's a wonderful old hymn called The Love of God, and in there there's a poetry about if every uh, piece of grass was a stalk or a quill, and if we were to write the love of God in the sky above, we could not contain everything that was written about Christ. And this is what John testifies to. I've just given you a sample of what Christ did on this earth. So to, to determine it's John, you've got this internal evidence. We have seen his glory. We have seen the crucifixion. And I am a disciple bearing witness. When we beheld his glory, I think you align that to the one event. What's the one event in Jesus' life where they saw the glory of Christ, the transfiguration. Who was there at the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. So it has to be one of those three. Uh, Peter is mentioned by name already in the gospel in 141, where he's called to be a disciple. And you've got this 
this account in the, in the, in the middle of the upper room discourse where, where you've got the description of the disciple whom Jesus loved was leaning on, on Jesus' uh, chest and asking questions about who the betrayer was. So we have an indication that it's still unnamed. It's not Peter. It's a disciple that Jesus loved. Peter is named, so it probably can't be him. James was martyred by the time this gospel was written. This gospel was written about AD 80. This is when John penned these words, and he was in likely in Ephesus when he did this, before he got um, exiled at Patmos. So Peter's mentioned, James is martyred, it leaves only one other. John. So that's the internal evidence. Now John also wrote some other New Testament books, right? What other books did he write? He wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. So that he is actually probably third in line of, of total New Testament writings. You have Luke first by volume, then Paul, then John. So it's a significant part of our New Testament canon. So the next question is, we've got John, he's the author. We've got when he wrote it, AD 80. And uh, we need to now ask, well, why did he write it? Why did he write this gospel? We already have three other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark and Luke. So why was John compelled by the Spirit of God to write this particular account? What was his purpose? And we're very, very fortunate in this particular Gospel, because we have a very, very clear purpose stated. If you turn to your journals, John chapter 20, 30 and 31, put a big circle around it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm just going to unpack this verse a little bit because this is important considering the structure of the Gospel of John because everything we read about in the Gospel of John has got to fit in some way into this purpose statement. Every miracle, every I am statement, every uh, bit of advice, every bit of counsel needs to fit into this. They're written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You may believe, you may have faith in and have life in his name. As you can read, the first part of this purpose statement is the, the focus on signs. And this is important in the Gospel of John. And these signs are to lead you to belief. But you need to ask the question and go one back. Well, what is a sign? What is a sign? How would you define a sign? How does John define signs? Is it common the way he defines it in relation to the Old Testament or in relation to uh, the other synoptic Gospels? You see, it's interesting because 
the very structure of the book seems to be this way. In the first chapter, you have what we know as the, the prologue, the beginning, the introduction of things. Verses 1 to 18 of First John is significant because that outlines what will be spoken about through the rest of the book. And then there's a witness to Jesus being the Son of God. That's the first chapter. And then from chapter 2, where the first sign miracle is, is written and recorded, right through to chapter 12, we have seven signs. See, John uses the word sign 17 times in, in this gospel. 16 of those times is used in those first 12 chapters. So hence we can call, you can almost break the book up into two books. You've got the book of signs, which is predominantly what we deal with in the first part of this year. We won't quite get to it all. And then you have the book of exaltation, which includes the crucifixion and the glorification of Christ through his resurrection. And then you round it up with an epilogue. So the very literary structure of, of this gospel is around signs. So how would you define a sign? Well, let's start in the Old Testament. I'm just going to quickly give you some kind of uh, keys on how the Old Testament defined a sign. It tended to define it seven ways, seven categories. Now, I'm not going to debate the veracity of seven categories. It could be eight, it could be nine, it could be ten, but seven's a holy number, okay? So I reckon if we go for seven, we're halfway there. You have signs of divine knowledge, i.e. the hardening of Pharaoh's heart towards letting God's people go. You have signs of protection or distinction. Think of the protection given to Cain after he killed Abel. God gave a sign that he would be protected and not be slaughtered. Even the sign of protection was putting the, the blood on the lintels of the door during Passover time. That was a sign. You have signs of faith. The great works that God performed in Egypt to bring the people out. They displayed his faithfulness and power. There are clearly signs of remembrance throughout the Old Testament, right? Passover, Sabbath, even stones of remembrance. When they walked into the promised land and, and went over the Jordan, what did they do? They grabbed 12 stones and put them in the middle of the dry Jordan. It's a sign, a stone of remembrance. You have signs of the covenant. After the great flood, what was the sign of the covenant? I'll place a sign in the sky, a rainbow. Signs of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not quite a rainbow in the sky, but it's circumcision. And then you have the sign of being a law-abiding Jewish follower of Yahweh in keeping the Sabbath. You have signs of confirmation. They're normally there to authenticate or confirm a divine message. And then there are some symbolic signs throughout the Old Testament. And they function as a means of proclaiming God's message. 
So that's the Old Testament. Does John use a similar definition in, in his gospel? That's the question before us. Well, let's look at um, the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, the word's used at least 77 times. 13 times by Matthew, 7 times by Mark, 24 times by Luke in Luke and Acts, 8 by Paul, once in Hebrews, and 24 times by John. 17 in this gospel and 7 in Revelation. He never uses the word sign in his letters. So let's try and get a parallel between how the other gospel writers use the word signs in relation to John. And I think there is um, several different ways it's used from the Old Testament. And it seems to be in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that sign refers to something demanded by the religious leaders of the day. Demanded, Jesus, do us a sign. Do us a sign. However, Jesus often refuses. Is it only give you one sign to this generation? And that's the sign of Jonah. Secondly, I think in the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sign is used to refer to a future consummation of the kingdom. The disciples asked him, Jesus, what is going to be the sign of your coming? And he gives signs about the future consummation of the kingdom. And I think also they generally use some of the Old Testament categories that we discussed as well. In the book of Acts, there seems to be a, a, a two phrases used together, signs and wonders. And it's very similar to use in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And they are of a supernatural event of great significance. So I think you could, in the synoptics, you could say... Uh, there are two broad categories. Reference to the demands of unbelief and hardness of heart by the religious leaders and Pharisees or a end view. Give us a sign about what's going to happen in the future. And they all contain supernatural elements. But in the Gospel of John, I think he narrows the definition of sign. I think it's very important. This is why I'm talking about this as we go through this study. As I said, there's 16 times he uses it in these first 12 chapters. And the reason he uses it is because he wants to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. Sure, there are times when John uses the word sign in a similar way to the other Gospels. But his main focus and his main priority is to identify Jesus. The sign identifies that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the divine Son of God. So very clearly, the sign miracles in the Gospel of John are Christological. They talk about Christ, they explain who Christ is, that he is the divine Son of God incarnate. Now, generally the word sign in, the, in, these, in the gospel is restricted to the miracles that Jesus does. 
these seven miracles that are recorded there. And these miracles are messianic in their focus, i.e. they display the fact that this is the Messiah. Isaiah 35 had explained what to look for in the Messiah who were to come and there'd be miracles associated with him. So the miracles are understood as signs pointing beyond themselves. These miracles are signs that point beyond themselves. Who do they point to? Where is the signpost? Where do they point? They point to prove Jesus' identity. And they're both miraculous and messianic. And John tends to use these signs in a, in a very um, positive manner. as a, a source of knowledge about Jesus and as a motivation to believe or continue to believe. Every time you read a sign, there's this refrain that goes back to the purpose statement. These things are done so that you may believe and have life in his name. And I think the signs also have a, quite a deep theological purpose. If you look at chapter 2, the end of the first sign, so chapter 2, you know, turning the water into wine, Go to verse 11. Wonderful summary. This, the first sign, first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. There's your theological purpose. This sign was so that the disciples themselves would believe. I think up until this point, they were just following Jesus because he was a man of great knowledge. Sure, they said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But at that point in time, they didn't understand that until here, until they saw a sign. And then they believed. And why do they believe? And what, what was the result? It manifests Christ's glory. Another theological purpose is, is um, what we talk about pointing uh, to something in the future. Some of the signs have a future point, like, for instance, the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead was pointing to the fact that Christ himself would be raised from the dead. It was pointing to the fact that if we have faith and trust and believe in his resurrection, that we also would be raised from the dead. It's pointing forward. And then there were signs that were of universal emphasis. I am the bread of life. He goes and feeds 5,000. Showing that he is the source of life by providing food. And that's just prior to the statement where he's made that I am the bread of life. That has a universal emphasis that all life, everything that subsists is in him. I think so often we forget that. So often we think it's in us. Life only comes through Christ. Everything is in him. So these signs are both Christological, messianic, and theological. And he narrows it compared with the other Gospels. So what else do we learn from this purpose statement? Well, the signs are given. The, the disciples saw them, testified to them. 
There are many more signs done than what are written in this book. But here's the purpose. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So one of the purposes of the Gospel of John is what we call apologetic. That's why so often if you've got non-Christian friends, give them the Gospel of John to read. It defends who Christ is and what he's done. What I mean by apologetic, it means it's a verbal defense of the fact that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, that he is the divine Son of God who entered into this world by the way of the incarnation. The second purpose here, I think, is evangelistic. Apologetic, you may believe, evangelistic, that by believing you may have life in his name. John, having been convinced about what he had saw and convicted by the true identity of Jesus, he wanted his believers, he wanted his readers to believe in God the Son incarnate and receive the divine gift of eternal life. And I think there's another purpose, which is an implied purpose, which is not written in this particular purpose statement, but as you read through John. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, which is known as the Upper Room Discourse. You see an implied statement that John wants to write to strengthen believers, to strengthen disciples initially, that in his absence, that their faith would be strengthened on who Jesus is. Don't we find comfort when we read those chapters? that the ever-present third person of the Trinity is with us. The Spirit of God dwells within us, refines, shapes, comforts, and encourages. So we have that implied purpose uh, pastorally. So it's apologetic, it's evangelistic, and it's pastoral. There are many other themes in John that we will discover as we go through this book. I'll let you discover them. I'm not even going to mention them. But there are many. So now let's turn to John chapter 1. Let's read the first five verses. I'm going to read the whole prologue, which is verse 1 to 18. Uh, Because of the significance of the prologue, we're going to spend the next three Sundays on it. Paul's going to look at the middle section next week, and I'll conclude it the following week. But let's read together. Let's stand to read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, And the darkness has not overcome it. Please take a seat. If you wanted to summarize the subject of those five verses, what is it? Who is the subject of those five verses? The Word. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Whenever you see something repeated, that helps you determine what the main subject of the phrase is. So who is the Word? Who is the Word? Say, Jesus, where do you find that? Tells me it's Word. You scroll down the prologue, you'll go to... 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So the Word is now described as what happens. The Word is incarnated. So yes, the Word is Jesus. This, these particular five verses provide significant revelations about the one to whom the sign miracles bear witness to. Remember we talked about the sign miracles. They all bear witness to the Word, to the divine Word, the messianic Christ. And these revelations by John derive their significance from the Old Testament scriptures. As you read that, can you see the similarities between that and Genesis 1? Can you see the similarities between what John says and what Moses says through Genesis chapter 1? You get some wonderful uh, progressive revelation from John which we haven't had before. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we know that Christ, the divine word, was a creator. Nowhere. Because all we have is in the beginning God. But here, we have John inform us that, okay, I'm going to give you a, a scope through the power of the Holy Spirit what was actually in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the divine Word, and the Word was and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Sorry about the typo up there. Almost become Jehovah's Witness. So you have now Two parts of the triune God mentioned by John. The divine word was with God and the divine word was God. A critical, critical truth of Christianity. Not only was the word with God, he made all things through him. God made everything through Christ through the divine word. And without him, nothing was made. Of critical importance to understand. The other places that we have this truth is Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews chapter 1. So it's not just John. We have a, a consistent testimony that Christ is the creator. The divine word, the pre-incarnate Christ, as part of the second person of the Trinity. We also read that in him was life. And he was the light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I just love the way John starts this gospel. See, unlike the other synoptics where you have either a genealogy. Matthew and Luke, or the way Mark starts his gospel. How does Mark start his gospel? He says, 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark 1.1. So Mark begins to tell us about the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. What does John do? John wants to show us at the starting point of the gospel. He wants to show us that the starting point of the gospel can be traced even further back. Back before the beginning of the entire creation of the universe. That's what this statement is saying. The divine Son of God co-equal, co-existent, the same divine self-expression as the Father and the Spirit existed before time began and not constrained by time and space. And this is the starting point of the gospel. Because Ephesians 1 tells us that before the foundation of the world, God chose those who would be saved. This is the same. The divine word, who is in essence God, very essence, same essence, God of very God, as the Nicene Creed says, is the pre-existent one. The divine word. See, this concept of divine word we, we see encompasses Jesus' entire ministry, placing all of Jesus' works and words within the framework of both his eternal being and his existence in God's self-revelation and salvation history. And this truth stretches our minds, doesn't it? I can't fathom it at times. I can't fathom it at all, actually. The divine word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Why? To provide salvation. You cannot divorce his divinity from his humanity. We'll talk about that next time. But understand this truth. Christ's divine essence, his creatorial work, and his eternality is a primary truth of the Christian faith. And anyone who separates them is a heretic. And we need to be mindful of that because there are some in evangelical circles at the moment who are starting to doubt the divinity of Christ. It's always been there. It started back in 325 A.D but it's just manifesting itself in different forms. So folks, hold to this truth. The eldership of this church hold to this truth. In our statement of faith, we hold to this truth. Christ is the divine word. He's always been the divine son of God, and through him all things have been created. Not only is the source of creation, but as Colossians 2 tells us, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. Colossians 2.9. This is wonderful truth. Because Christ, the divine Son of God incarnate, is our Savior. 
The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's verse 14. The entire book of John is nothing more than an expression of this theme, which fulfills the stated purpose that you may believe. John's emphasis on the eternal Word in these verses is that as the Creator, He is distinct from all creation. second part is the divine word is the source of all life as we read life exists in the eternal word both physical and eternal all things were made through and without him nothing was made he is life and the life was the light of men so he uses the interplay between life and light Jesus demonstrated he was created when he turned water into wine he also demonstrated that he was the source of life through feeding the 5,000 and his declaration that he was the bread of life. He showed us he's the source of life by raising Lazarus from the dead and declaring that he is the resurrection and life. He also demonstrates that he is the source of light through the miracle of healing the blind man, the man born blind, and then declaring that he is the light of the world. All things show us that the word is eternal and divine. The truth of the full deity of Christ always will divide humanity. See, that's even indicated here in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's always going to be significant opposition to this message that Christ is the only way of salvation. That Christ is fully God and fully man. Always going to be opposition. I think darkness here for John and, and, and his thought is not merely a lack of intellectual knowledge or illumination. Darkness for John is a symbol of complete rebellion, complete conflict and hostility towards God. It signals an existence as opposed to God. In other words, the the darkness that John mentions is not merely a passive state that is absent of God's light, but rather an active opposition and rebellion to the things of God. But you know what? This verse gives me great hope because the darkness does not overcome the light. The darkness does not overcome the light. Who do you worship today? Do you worship the divine Son of God who was with God in the beginning, who is God, who is life, who is light, who overcomes darkness by providing salvation? Do you worship Him? Do you place your faith and trust and belief in Him? That's what this gospel calls you to do. And as we go through the gospel, this will become more evident and more evident. My appeal to you today is don't go today, away today, without exploring this truth, without calling out in faith and repentance to the divine word. It's only he that saves. He is mighty to save. Thanks, music team.